uh, put on my heart to share with you. Uh, if you're new at Grace, we're glad you're here. We would love to know uh, that you visited us. So there's a little connection card in your bulletin. If you fill that out, it would be great. Um, you can drop that off to the information counter. This is also just a great way for you to communicate with us. So even if you've been here for a long time or just a little while and you have questions, uh, if you fill this out and drop it off, we'll make a commitment to get back to you uh, within the week. I don't know about you if you're uh, as excited as I am, but it seems that God is doing a lot in our midst. I keep hearing stories of how God's showing up and uh, stories of life change, stories of, of how the, God's using the curtain studies, just the, how God's using restorative prayer. Uh, it's just been a pretty exciting time to be around here, so I hope uh, you are excited, as excited as I am. Um, but one of the reasons I think that, that things are happening at Grace is the commitment we made about a year ago uh, to foster a culture of prayer. Every major movement in the history of the church, whether it's a revival or, or a movement of growth within the church, always started with uh, a movement of prayer. And so uh, we decided that that's part of what we need to do here. And there was a few ways that we asked you to participate. And one of them was that you would join us at 9.30 in the morning uh, throughout the week and pray for us. Now, I've heard some people say to me, well, I don't know what to pray. I feel like it's just sort of a rote prayer. It's, I stop, I pray. And I would tell you that's okay. That's a good thing. Like even if all you can pray or all you have time to pray, you're in the middle of a meeting, your alarm goes off, and all you can do is just silently say, Lord, be with grace. Lord, protect grace. Lord, be with the leadership of grace. Whatever God brings to mind is enough. Um, but we want a 1,000 plus people. We have that many people who have committed. But if you look at your bulletin, and if you have one with you, if you look at it right now, in the back of the bulletin, there is a opportunity for you to, oh, <laughs> I'm like, Jay, I'm trying to preach here. He's like saying, roots, roots, roots. If you're part of roots, you're dismissed right now. I will eventually remember that. And just so you know, whenever we transition from the worship to me coming up here, roots is always dismissed at that time. And they'll put the slide up on the screen, which I never look at the screen. They're like, oh, we'll put it up and then you'll see it. Okay, where was I? Okay, 930 prayer on the back of your bulletin. Uh, if you take a minute and you can do that while I'm talking and I won't be offended this time and text to that number, then you will be part of a group, and that will allow us a couple times a week to text you and tell you, hey, here's what's going on at Grace. Here's a way that you can pray for us. So we would love for you to be part of the, the 930 group. And then we also pray a half hour before both services, and I love it that some people have caught the vision and they're bringing their kids to that. And here's the reason why I love that, because it shows our kids that we are dependent on prayer. It helps our kids to see that we are serious enough about what we want to happen in the lives of our people, in the lives of the church, that we bring our kids and our kids' witnesses doing it. So I want to just encourage you to be part of that, uh, that, that half hour before. So at 8.30 or at 10.40, it's just a great time to kind of quiet your spirit. I can't tell you how many Sundays where God has used uh, those 15 minutes just to kind of, kind of recenter me and get me going. So enough of the non-announcement announcements. We are in week four of a church without curtains, and I think it would be wise for us to take a minute and kind of look back at where we've been so far, uh, and if you have missed any of the Sundays, I really want to encourage you to go online, listen to them online, or just get the CD if you're a person that likes to listen to them in your car, uh, get a CD and listen to them, um, and I also want to encourage you that if you are not in a group, that you can just get a book uh, from the information counter, they're $5.00. Uh, if that's too much for you, just tell them to put it on the church's tab. Get a book. You can follow along today if you're taking notes. I think you're on page 57 
Um, but we'd love for you to have the book, be following along with us if you're doing it. But about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, actually, I was preaching right here and from this spot, and I heard God say to me, I want this to be a church without curtains. And if you remember back then, we used to have black curtains that we hung across the, the balcony there, kind of to shrink the room and pull people down a little bit further, and I never really liked the curtains. Um, so when I heard God say that, I immediately thought, well, he must be, he wants to grow the church. He wants to fill every seat. And I, I do think God wants to grow this church. I think he wants to fill every seat. I think he wants us to, to meet our redemptive potential. He wants more people to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. So clearly God wants to fill every seat. But the more I prayed about it, the more I realized God was saying something different. What he was saying to me is, I want this to be a church where people understand that they have access to me where people understand that, that they actually have access to the power of God in their lives. I want this to be a church where we're honest about our relationship with God and honest about our re relationship with one another, that there's a, a, a deeper place that we can go with one another. So the, the Church Without Curtains came out of that moment in time when I was right here on the stage. And so we started this, this whole series by talking about Matthew 27. If you remember, Matthew 27 tells us that when, when Jesus died, when he gave up his breath, and he died, that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, from, from heaven to earth, the curtain was torn. And the curtain was hung in the temple to, to separate the, the holy of holies from, from the people. It was a way of, of containing, if you will, God's presence, or at least a symbol of containing God's presence. And you could only go into the holy of holies once a year, and only the priest could do it. And so here's this curtain that's 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and as thick as a man's hand. And when Jesus died, the curtain was torn, and suddenly everything changed, and we now have access to God. We actually can enter the Holy of Holies. I'm going to put on the screen Hebrews 10, which is, well, this isn't the passage we're going to unpack today, but it, Hebrews 10:19, Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have been this confidence to enter the most holy place. We have the confidence to go into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body. Jesus became the way for us to enter into the holy of holies, to stand in the presence of God. Look at the last six words of that passage, the curtain that is his body. Jesus has, has paved a way for us. He's made a way for us to have total access to the power of God in our lives, to, to, to standing in God's presence. You know what? I don't think we get this. I don't think I get this. Because if we really got it, there would be no containing the movement of God in this place. If we really understood that we have the ability to stand in the presence of the Almighty God, to, ha to have God that close to us, it would radically change everything we do. And then we looked at Philippians 1.6. Remember, God, who, that he who began a good work in you would see it through to completion. We talked about the fact that when we understand that we're all a work in progress, it helps us to have a, a greater level of grace with one another because I know that God's not through with you. You're still going to mess up. I'm still going to mess up. It'll be a, an important dynamic to your, your group component if you understand that you're a work in progress. We talked about the fact that you need community if you're going to grow. If you're going to grow spiritually, one of the prerequisites is that, you, that you're in authentic community. And we also talked about humility. If you have humility and understand your desperate need for God, it will help you to grow spiritually as well. So, so God is at work. God is accessible to us. He's, he's at work in our lives. He's changing our lives. And, and then we, we saw from, from what Stacy shared with us that, that our stories throughout our lives, there's places in our lives, tragedies in our lives, things that have happened to us, things that we've done, things that have have been done to us that have opened doors, she talked about, or you could call them strongholds or 
beachheads. We used a few different words there, but, but that we have an opportunity to, to close those doors, to remove those strongholds through the work of God. So the, the takeaway message from last week is God has given us freedom, but it's, we have to learn to take hold of the freedom that we have in Christ. So all of this has happened over the last few weeks, and now we're moving into to week four. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into our passage today. Lord, I thank you for this uh, opportunity that we have as a church to maybe do things differently. I was talking to a friend this week and saying if we could get this, it could be so radically different for our church to really live authentically before you and before one another be able to bring our hurts and our pains and our excitements and our questions and our confusion and not have to play church but to be the church. Lord, help us to know that we have access to the God of the universe and that he desires to bring good things into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 16 through 21. John 3, verses 16 through 21. This passage is a powerful description of all that we have in Christ. It is this beautiful picture of of the power that exists in in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's it's a great opportunity for us to look at a, a passage that's incredibly familiar. Most of you know this passage um, but we're going to try to look at it in a way that maybe brings some, some new thought to it. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the fact that sometimes we need to pull over to the scenic lookout and see what's really going on. This is another chance for us to do that. So John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That last passage, 21, is really just a description of what it means to confess to one another, to be honest with one another. So keep your Bibles open to to chapter 3, because we're not only going to talk about this verse, but we're going to talk about some of the passages that are right before it. But John 3, 16, right? It's probably the most memorized verse in the entire Bible. We see it on water towers. We see it on billboards. We see it on bumper stickers. We see it at athletic events. How many of you remember this guy? Right, the rainbow-haired guy who was in the end zone for so many football games. He always had the John 3.16. He was so famous that he actually made the Simpsons. There he is, again, same guy. Or what about Tim Tebow? You remember Tim Tebow when he was playing and he would put John 3.16 on his face? John 3.16 is so familiar to us. But the question I would ask is, is it really known? Do you really get the power of John 3.16? Do you understand the meaning behind the passage. Have you ever stopped and looked at this passage in context? What's Jesus saying? What is the invitation that he's offering? 
This is a really well-known verse, but it's part of a conversation. It's part of a conversation that Jesus is having with this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And if you know the story of Jesus, you know that the Pharisees were Jesus' arch enemy, right? They were the the nemesis that was always uh, opposing him and causing problems for him. They're the ones that that, that had him arrested. They're the ones that convinced the Romans to have him crucified. So, So Nicodemus is one of those guys. He's one of the, the bad guys, if you will. But there's something different about Nicodemus. And we see it in this dialogue, but we also see it later. So if you want to do a little looking later, look at John chapter 7 and John 19. Because Nicodemus shows up again. He kind of stands in defense of Jesus in 7. And, and he's the one that actually uh, goes with uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and helps to, to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So something different is going on. Even though he's a Pharisee, there's something Something is, is going on in his spirit, something different. So he, he shows up on the scene, and he comes to Jesus, and he comes by night, it says. So he shows up at night, maybe because he was a cowardice, and he wanted to keep it a secret, but, but I think maybe he came to him at night because he just wanted to have a conversation with him. And if we look at the life of Jesus, he didn't have a whole lot of one-on-one time during the day because the crowds would show up, and it would be so busy. But we know he wanted to have a conversation. And we know that he's curious, and we know that he's a little confused, and we know that he's somewhat conflicted in his spirit. And he can see Jesus doing all these amazing things, and it doesn't make any sense to him. And he actually says to Jesus, and these are really powerful words for us to understand, he says, we know that you come from God. This is a Pharisee speaking. He says, we know. Now, I don't know who the we is, whether it was a few of his friends. I'm pretty sure he wasn't speaking on behalf of the whole uh, Pharisee group. But he's saying, we know that you come from God because no one else could do all the things that you do if, if God was not with them. And Nicodemus hasn't asked a question yet, but Jesus knows what's going on in his spirit. He knows that, that Nicodemus is really saying, how is this possible like, you don't fit any of the mold. You don't, this is not what we expected. You are not what we were, we were looking for, yet we see you doing these amazing things. You can hear in, in what Nicodemus is saying this, this question and almost see him standing there like, like, what's the deal? This doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. And Jesus knows that's going on. So look at verse 3, 3-3. Three, three. He says these words. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can sing the, see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, this starts a pretty lively conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, because Nicodemus responds in in verse 4, he says, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Well, the reality is Nicodemus is not nearly as confused as we may read this, or we may have interpreted this, or it may appear. Because Nicodemus knows that that, that this is a common way of teaching in that day, to use metaphors, to use stories, to use parables. Jesus didn't, didn't make that way of teaching up. He certainly perfected it, but that was the way things were taught in the day. They would use metaphors. They would use stories. So, so clearly Nicodemus would have known Jesus was using a metaphor because no adult would think that Jesus was really saying you have to go back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. So he's just, in essence, he's playing along with what Jesus is saying. He's trying to get clarity. But here's the question that Nicodemus is asking. He's saying, Can a man really change? Are we really capable of rebirth? Can it even be possible? He knows what Jesus is talking about. He knows that there's something going on here in the supernatural. And and he says, "I, I know I can't go back into my mother's womb, but is transformation really possible? You see, Nicodemus is bought into the old saying, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. 
It's sort of as if he's standing there and he's saying, we are who we are, right? We're just, we can't really change, can we, Jesus? And Jesus looks at me and he says, no, you can change. Indeed, transformation is not only possible, it's why I'm here. I'm here to change lives. So he answers, Jesus answers Nicodemus, look at verse 5 and 6. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Because flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He starts with these tender words. He says, very truly I say to you. Actually, he's just saying, pay attention. This is so important, Nicodemus. I, I, I don't know that he did this, but in my imagination, I can see him like taking Nicodemus' face, his beard in his hands, and holding his cheeks and saying, Nicodemus, you, you got to hear this. You got to pay attention. This is so important that you get this. Flesh gives birth to flesh. He could have said, moms give birth to babies. He could have said humans give birth to humans. He said flesh gives birth to flesh, right? We, we, are, we are people and we give birth to people. But the Spirit, the Spirit of God gives birth to Spirit. You must be born of water and Spirit. What did he mean when he said that? There's a lot of debate about this, actually, and if you, if you read a whole bunch of scholars, you're going to get a whole bunch of answers about what did Jesus mean when he said you must be born by water, but I actually think we're overthinking it just a little bit. Some would say, well, that's a reference to John's baptism and the fact that we need to be baptized, and, and, and I, don't, I just don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying exactly what we think he's saying. You must have natural birth, and you must have supernatural birth. Because he says in verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh. But then he says, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again. There is some type of second rejuvenation that must take place. So when you were conceived in your mother's womb, the spirit of God in that moment breathed life into you, breathed human life into you. You became alive at the moment of conception because of the breath of God breathing into you. That's what it means to be born of flesh. But when you accept Jesus as your savior, then something takes place. The spirit breathes life into your spirit. Jesus is answering Nicodemus's question. He's saying, even old men can change, Nicodemus. You can teach an old dog new tricks. You can be made new. As a matter of fact, that's why Jesus came. So if you look at, and I don't want you to, to, to look it up, maybe you just write it down, but Ezekiel 36, 26. This is a prophecy about what Jesus will do when he comes and he, he lives and he dies and, he, and he's buried and he raises from the dead. This is a, a picture of the new covenant we have. And it says, it says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take your heart that is rigid and hard and, and unchangeable, and I will remove that heart, and I will put in you a heart of flesh, a heart that is moldable, changeable, a heart that can be shaped into the image of God himself. Something supernatural happens, and God gives us a new heart so that we can experience change. Going back to John chapter 3, 
Jesus says these words in verse 16, the words that we know so well, that this is what God's up to. Remember, he's answering Nicodemus' question, can a man really change? He says, this is what it's all about. He says, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Now, because we've taken this verse throughout the history of of modern history and we've pulled it out of context and we've used it as a, a verse about evangelism, we read this verse as some kind of an insurance policy. If I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, then when I die, I'll go to heaven. And I did a funeral in here Friday, and and you know what? This is an incredibly comforting verse at the time of a funeral. That is not a wrong interpretation of that verse. It is just a very narrow one. It is very limited to what all God was saying. Absolutely. If you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you will spend eternity with him. We have all kinds of of documentation. The Bible tells us that over and over. But Jesus is talking about more than just an insurance policy. He's saying, if you accept me, I am promising you life right now. This is present tense language, not future tense language. If you turn to me, I give you access to the power of God in your life. I make the spirit available to you. Life starts right now. He says, you have eternal life. But what is eternal life? Well, the good news is Jesus answered that question for us because in John 17, 3, Jesus says, now this is eternal life. He's defining eternal life for us. He says that that they know you, He's praying to God, the the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is life, that you know God and you know Jesus, whom he has sent. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that when you believe, you are given spiritual birth. God gives you life, and the life he gives you starts right now. How cool is that? That is the greatest news there is. And we know that his motivation is love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. God loved the world. And just so you know, when he said that, that would have been a moment of pause for Nicodemus. Because what he actually said is God loves the cosmos. And the cosmos in the Greco-Roman world actually was humankind. It wasn't the birds and the plants and the trees and the mountains. Now, God loves all those things, but, but Jesus didn't come to save our pets. He came to save people. And the reason it would have been scandalous for Nicodemus here, because Nicodemus would have expected Jesus said, for God so loves the Jews. But he didn't say that. He said, God loves humankind. God loves people. He said, God loves you. It's a pretty amazing and and scandalous thing for Jesus to put out there. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. This is where our image of God needs to be reshaped. You see, sometimes we think of God as a God who's waiting to punish us. This is actually what Satan wants you to believe. If there's one message he can get to you is is God is angry. God can't wait to bring the hammer. Boy, God is really mad at you for all that you've done wrong. But God is not coming to punish. God is coming to save. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Look at verse 17. 
fascinating to me that we seldom talk about 317, but we always talk about 316. 317 says, God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Remember what we learned last week? God's primary, secondary, and tertiary, and just so you know, I had to go home and look up what tertiary means, so if you did too, join the crowd. God's motivation for tearing down the curtains is love. God's reason for sending Jesus is love. God's desire to give us life is love. God's reason for making him accessible to us is love. God's desire to close those strongholds and footholds in your life is love. It's all motivated by the love of God. Jesus didn't come to us with a hammer. He came with an embrace. And we need to change our mindset to understand this. I want to clarify a common misconception, and I know I'm going to get into some dangerous ground here, and and some of you might shake you up a little bit, but here's how the gospel was taught to me. There's this God, and God is holy, and God is just, and both those things are true, by the way, but there was this picture painted of this, this God who was, who was so holy and so just, but then there was man, and man sinned, and so God separated himself from man and he was over here and here's this angry judgmental God and then Jesus showed up out of nowhere and Jesus went to man and he was buried and he died and he was buried and he rose again and now all of a sudden this angry God who's just and who's holy now he can come and he can have a relationship with me do you see what I just did I made Jesus and God not the same I tore apart the Trinity in that kind of a gospel. John 3.16 says that God loved the world. John 3.16 tells us that God entered into our darkness. He wasn't over here waiting for something to happen. The God of the universe entered our chaos to rescue us. Who showed up in the garden and called out for Adam and Eve? It was God. God is pursuing us. God is coming for us. God is the one who comes. And when you separate Jesus and God in in an unhealthy way, you create this picture of an angry God and a loving Jesus. And this passage tells us, no, God loved the world so much he was willing to sacrifice his very son. God entered our darkness. And it's so important for us to hold on to. Jesus brings light into our darkness. One of the questions that I have heard throughout this series, uh, this Church Without Curtains study, is why do we put up curtains? Why do you think we do this, Doug? Why is it so natural for us? Why is it so instinctive for us to hide? Why do we hide from God? Why do we hide from one another? You know, no one had to teach Adam and Eve. They didn't have to do an eight-week Bible study on how to hide from God. They hid. They sinned, they felt shame, and they hid. It came natural to them. It comes natural to us. It is part of something that's instinctive and in us to hide ourselves from one another and hide ourselves from God. Why is that? Well, what I love about the scriptures is it tells us why. So keep reading in verse 19. So we're still in John chapter 3, 19. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is a hard 
truth for us to preach, teach, and wrestle with. It is hard for us to admit that we have darkness in our spirit. It's hard for us to to say to one another, there is evil in me that I do not understand. We hide because of that darkness that's in our spirit. Paul David Tripp is a great author. I encourage you to read anything you can find that he's written. It's just good stuff. And he says these words. He says, I want to think that my biggest problem in life is the evil world that surrounds me. When in reality, my biggest problem in life is the evil heart that exists inside of me. If we are honest with ourselves, we know that we have a tendency towards evil. We have a tendency towards rebellion. We have a tendency towards pride. We have a tendency towards sin. There's something that is a battle within us. And, and we saw it yet last week. It's this, this battle. There is God and there is Satan. But we know there's something in us that, that causes us to move towards it. And in verse 19 of what we just read says, but light came into the world. So while there is darkness in your heart, the passage is telling you, yeah, I know there's darkness, but I'm bringing light into your darkness. I'm coming into that. I am entering into the chaos of your life and bringing light into the chaos of your life so that you can have victory over the darkness because when light comes, darkness flees. But why do we put up curtains? Look at verse 20. It says, because we have fear that our deeds will be exposed. This is why God comes. This is why God pursues. This is why God calls us out of hiding because he knows that we have fear that our deeds will be exposed. That's the very nature of shame. If anybody knew what had happened, if God actually knew, look, God knows and he's still pursuing you. So in our fear, we hide. But what does the scripture tell us about love? It says perfect love does what? Perfect love casts out all fear. So we need to have this different understanding of God. We need to understand the love of God because that's the only thing that will have us overcome the fear of our deeds, the fear of our evil hearts being exposed. Perfect love casts out all fear. Maybe I'm alone in this, but for a long time, for a long time, I believe that if anybody really knew me, including my wife, if she really knew me, she wouldn't love me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. I bought into that lie. So there's fear in that lie, isn't there? If, and so even in your study, there's a, a quote from Keller, I think it is, and it says that our greatest fear in life is to be truly known and not loved. If I really show you who I am and you don't love me, then that is the ultimate rejection in life. There is this fear that comes with this. So we're afraid that we won't be good enough. We don't have what it takes for whatever is in front of you. And so we disengage. Or maybe we become workaholics trying to overcome that fear. Some of you have a fear that you're not smart enough. So you put on pretenses of of using lots of words and quoting books all in an effort to prove to the world that you're smart. Some of us are afraid it's just never going to get better. I am never going to get over this problem. I am never going to be healthy again. And in that fear, we stop having hope. Some of you are afraid that you've just done too much bad stuff. 
I've sinned way too much. You don't know my life. You don't know all the things I've done. I've done way too much evil. I've messed up too much. Some of you are afraid that God's forgiveness isn't extended to you because you've screwed up too much. Most of us are afraid that if we expose our heart, someone's going to hurt it. We learned early on that to protect our hearts is the safest place to be. We're afraid to fail. We're afraid to succeed. We're afraid to have deep desires. We're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of being disappointed. We're afraid of rejection. We all have fear. Everyone in this room has fears. And God storms in. He enters into that dark place. And he says, don't be afraid. My love for you is greater than any fear that you might have. I loved you so much that I sent my one and only son so that when you believe in him, I'll give you life. And the life I want to give you, you don't have to wait for it. I want to give it to you right now. Perfect love casts out all fear. The only solution to our fear problem is Jesus. The only solution to our sin problem is Jesus. The only hope for transformation, the only answer to the question, can a man really change, is Jesus. The only hope for new life and life eternal is Jesus. And the beauty is he's here. He's in this room. The Spirit of God is in this place coming and entering into our darkness and inviting you to peel back the curtain and let the light of God shine in those places where you are most afraid. That's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe today is a day. I believe today is a day of salvation for people in this room. There are people in this room who have been coming to grace for a while and they've been hovering around this truth. They've been coming to grace and they've been saying, I don't know why I come, but there's something there. I hear you say that to me. I don't know why, but I, I know God's doing something there and I just want to be near it. Well, can I tell you the something he's doing? He is asking you to peel back the curtain and allow him to enter into your darkest places. Today is a day of salvation for many of you. Some of you know Jesus but you still have places where you've said, no, I can't have that, God. I don't know what to do with that. It's way too risky for me. And today can be a day where you allow God to come in. We're going to have the band come. Jamie's going to come, and she's going to sing a song. And I love that we're kind of moving towards this time at the end of the service to do some good reflection. And so there's, there's two ways that this can happen. You can do this sitting in your seat. Or you can come down if you want somebody to pray with you. We would love the opportunity to pray with you. So if the prayer team wants to come down, that would be great as well. But here's the question. Do you need Jesus? It's not a rhetorical question. It's a real question. Do you need Jesus? Have you seen the darkness of your own heart, and do you know that you need Jesus? I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to just pray in your spirit if you know you need Jesus, Lord, I am desperate for you. Lord, I, I know that I've messed up. I know that I've rebelled. I know that I've sinned. I know that there is darkness in my heart that I can't even understand. Lord, I desperately need 
you. But I believe that Jesus came to give me life, and I want that life. Lord, I surrender my life to you. Lord, I started praying this morning that the gospel would be clear. Your word says that this is all nonsense to those who are perishing. I am not clever enough and I am not smart enough. So I pray that as this gospel goes forward, as the truth of who Jesus is and all that he promises goes forward, that you would whisper truth in the ears of the people in this room. Lord, I pray that people would cross from death to life today. Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to slip out of their seats and come down and allow us to pray with them. Whether it's a first-time decision or just a decision to allow God to peel back another curtain and shine light in some dark places. Lord, thank you that you stormed into our darkness, that we don't have to clean ourselves up to get to you, that you are the one who does the cleaning. Wash me with hyssop. In Jesus' name, amen. If you desire prayer, we'd love for you to come down. me know me try me and see